Hello and welcome to In Good Company on NTS Radio, a monthly show for working women with me, Atega Uagba. If you're new to the show, a quick intro. I'm the founder of Women Who, which is a London-based community for creative working women. And I'm also the author of Little Black Book, which is a modern career guide for working women and, as of a few weeks ago, a Sunday Times bestseller. This podcast is all about providing you with the practical advice and fresh ideas that will help you work better, aided and abetted by some of the smart, successful, creative women I know. New episodes are released monthly and you can listen to them on NTS or you can download them via iTunes. So if you're not already, subscribe now to make sure you get them straight to your phone. Today I'm talking to Lana Ellie, who's the founder of Flume, an online florist delivery service that acts as a kind of marketplace for independent florists. Lana and I first met when we were working in the same building a few years ago. I was working at Vice and she worked on the floor above mine for the Fashion and Culture Bible ID magazine. She's since gone on to successfully start her own business, so I decided to get her on the show to get the 411 on the ins and outs of running a startup and find out some of the lessons she's learned along the way. If you're thinking of setting up your own business and in particular seeking investment to help you do that, I think you'll find our conversation pretty illuminating. Ask Adega is back to you, and this time I'm playing career agony aunt to someone who has the same level of responsibility as her male colleagues, but not the same job title. More on that later though. For now, here's my conversation with Lana. Hi Lana, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, good to be here. Um, so I'm really excited to talk to you because you are someone who's done something really incredible, which has started a business from scratch, which is something that I think a lot of people aspire to do, want to do. And today I just want to talk to you about the ins and outs of how you got that going, the investment process, running a business, everything. So for people listening who perhaps haven't heard of Flume, could you maybe just talk me through your business launch story? When did you decide to start Flume? And when did you launch? How did you go about doing that? Yeah, sure. So um, really quickly, Flume's a marketplace for independent florists. So what we've built is a software that allows florists to basically log on, upload their own bouquets, track their own orders, and distribute, run their own business online. Um, I launched, God, it was 2016, March now. It feels so much longer than that. It does feel like a long time. (laughs) It was about 20 months ago. Um, And I was at Vice at the time. I was head of branded content to ID um, and kind of just wanted to do something different. I'd always been thinking about doing something different. Um, And it was an idea that I had kind of mulled over for a couple of years um, and Vice helped push me because there was a lot happening at the time which you will know about consumer behavior and the movement to wanting to buy more local and people caring a lot more about product. Um, So yeah, that was kind of my movement where I thought, oh, actually people might be interested in this. People don't want to buy from Interflora anymore. It's not all about the big conglomerate mundane bouquets that you send. Um, And yeah I raised some money <laughs> just like that and um, we launched in March and with that insight that you've just mentioned which is that people don't want to just buy kind of generic flowers from like you say some of your competitors was that just based on like a personal insight something you saw did you do any market research to kind of corroborate that when you were starting out how did you make sure that there was actually a gap in the market for what you were doing I think you could, there was definitely a lot of market research that went into it, but you could kind of see it with brands around us. Like if you looked at even bigger brands like H&M opening things like And Other Stories and Cos and Zara becoming one of the biggest fashion brands in the world because they started to change their cuts, which became more fashion oriented. It was it was that reality that fashion and content was moving so fast that there was no more niche. Um, so you could you could take something that you once thought was niche, like good design, um, and apply that to a mass market appeal. Okay. And you said that you had this idea kind of in the back of your mind for a couple of years, but how long was it from when you actually, like at what stage did you properly decide to go for it? And how Um, long was it between that and launch and all the stuff to do with investment, which I'll get to later? 
It was probably a year, I think, from the day that I was in a cafe with a friend and I was like, oh yeah, this is what I'm going to do. Um, I talked about it for a year and didn't do anything. Um, and then once I finally started, it got to that stage where it was like, you need to stop talking about it or you need to do it. Because I remember, because from when we used to work together, I remember being at the pub once and you... Was I talking about it? You Well, no. You, so you actually told us all to follow this Instagram account, which you'd started called Flume, mm-hmm. which was just posting photos of flowers at the time. And were you at that stage thinking this was something you wanted to do or was that just like a hobby? If I had the Instagram. name Flume, I definitely, yeah, knew what I was doing okay. at that stage. Okay, you were just like, oh, this is just like a little thing that I'm doing. Just give it a follow. Yeah. <laughs> That's definitely the way in. Don't try and sell anyone anything. And then once they're in. Um, no, it was about a year of talking about it. And then okay. I put together a business plan. And that really, it got me so engaged that I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Mm. Like every day going to work was like, Oh no, I have to sit here for eight hours and do something else. So you were writing that business plan around your full-time job? Yeah, I was doing evenings and weekends. Okay. And just to find out about writing business plans, because I think this is something that a lot of people don't know much about, or it seems a little bit opaque, it seems really, really complicated. Where did you learn how to put together a business plan? Um, YouTube, probably. Okay. <laughs> it was my, it was my biggest teacher. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was, was fair. It was all internet based. Mm-hmm. If you Google, you know, best business plan structure, they're all they all pretty much mirror each other. It's like 10 to 15 pages that gives you the titles. Um, it really sets out the process that you need to go through to even sense check your own idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just watched people pitch it on YouTube. Okay. And I mean, I've seen your business plan. I won't give too much away about it, but there's obviously a lot of kind of hard data and research in there. So where did you get that from? Um, There's a lot at the library. So, uh, you know, those big IBIS reports and stuff that cost a thousand pounds. You can get them at the British Library for free. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Um, And then just, yeah, found a lot of stuff online. The great thing about those reports is they'll give you like the top line data Mm. in order for you to be inspired to pay a thousand pounds for it. Um, And so you then, you had a business plan, had that together. Did you send that to anyone to have a look through? Did you get any feedback? Yeah, definitely. It went to probably 10, 15 people. Um, I went to a lot of different talks that you can find online. There's so many different things. And if I found somebody useful, I'd contact them on LinkedIn afterwards and ask if they'd look through the business plan. Were you worried that someone might, because this is a thing that I hear a lot from people who are like starting businesses and they want to keep their idea really close to them. Like, were you worried that someone might rip you off and steal your idea? I, I was in the beginning. I actually went to a talk once and the guy presenting was like, so if your idea is a flower delivery company, and I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> you know, how? <laughs> I actually emailed him afterwards and I was like, that was an interesting reference. Like, why'd you use that? And he was like completely off the top of my head. Wow. Okay. Um, And it was actually him at that stage who was like, you've got to just tell people your idea because they'll help you either figure out if it's crap or help you turn it into something that's quite good. Mm. Um, And I would say the idea definitely changed a lot within those first few months. I want to talk about the investment process or seeking investment because this is another thing that I think is quite opaque to people outside of that world. How did you go about looking for people to fund? Or in fact, why did you need that? Like, what did you need startup capital for? I guess for us, we were building this... I say us, like, <laughs> there were several you people. You have a team. Well, at the time, it <laughs> the was time, just you, right? it was me. Um, I'm so used to referencing we and us. Um, for me, at the time, it was this technology platform that I wanted to build. So it's a back-end system where several people can log in and upload content to. It's, in theory, like an eBay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I needed... I obviously can't code. Um, and that was where the biggest amount of our funding went. It went into UX design and then developing the program. Uh, the platform so with the investment process how did you find potential investors how did you approach them how did you pitch them like what are some top tips what was your experience like I have to say admittedly I think I was quite lucky in this scenario because everybody I was speaking to the right people who were introducing me to the right people that being people who had money and you know invested 
Okay. Um, whereas in in rounds afterwards, when I'm talking about larger sums of money, it's been a lot more difficult. But in this case, and it's such a bad story in a way because people are like, oh, what's your story? And I go, yeah, it happened in three weeks. And the first two people I met gave me the money that I needed. But that, I mean, you're saying that it was lucky or it sounds easy, but that wouldn't have happened if you didn't have a good idea and a good pitch. Like, I think you ought to take some credit for that. For that. Absolutely. But I also, when you raise money, you do get introduced to a lot of people who actually don't have the money to invest or don't understand investing those kinds of sums okay. or don't have intention and it's more of like a game. Mm. Whereas in, I was introduced to two people who had what? the money and that's what they did they made big investments and were actually prospects exactly okay. um so I, I did get really lucky obviously them saying yes had nothing to do with luck mm. um but being put in front of the right people straight off the bat was was a great experience okay and something that i've heard you talk about before which is because you're obviously the founder of flume you're a sole founder which i think can be I've heard you say that that can be difficult for people seeking investment and that often a lot of investors favour sort of co-founders or maybe even, you know, a trio of founders. Can you explain a little bit why that is? Yeah, I apply. I actually applied for an accelerator once and one of the questions was who is, it was a required question, it was who was your co-founder? And I couldn't submit the form. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> it was a required question. <laughs> Me? <laughs> I had to email them and I was like, I, I'm a sole founder. And they were like, oh, just put your name twice. Oh, my God. Um, and so the, that's how ingrained it is into the investment seeking process. Definitely. Or? And when you look at companies like accelerators, they have to they have to look at the risk mm-hmm. within any situation. Right. And having a startup is hard. So if you have two people dealing with the pressure and one backs out there's still another person to run the business okay so it's kind of hedging their bets a little bit exactly um so yeah it's definitely you walk into a room as a sole founder and people already you're you're risky i mean you're a startup so already you're risky. <laughs> <laughs> you're a sole founded startup you're even riskier um it yeah it adds to your to your risk value but i mean also i see so many scenarios with co-founders where they fall out yeah things get completely tits exactly up. there's happen. no clarity on what their roles are you know mm. it was two friends there's no contracts there's there's ups and downs to both sides definitely I totally i mean for people who are sole founders do you think there are particular things that they can do to kind of mitigate that risk or that perception of risk in the eyes of investors probably build a good advisory structure around them i've definitely seen my investors get a lot more comfortable comfortable and confident with me once I have a board Um, and there's certain people on those boards that they respect and they feel like I'm speaking to every day I mean one of the things I mention to my investors all the time is like yes I speak to him every day (laughs) (laughs) so they feel more confident with the decisions I'm making so how do you go about putting together a board like who what sorts of people do you get to be on your board are they paid for that do they get equity what's the what's the four-on-one on a board I've I've spoken to a lot of people about this and I only have one person on my board so I'm still kind of forming it. The feedback I always got was keep it odd numbers because <laughs> it's always going to come down to a vote. Ah, okay. Um, and make them investors. So there are, I've seen situations where people aren't investors and are on a board but you the time you're going to give to a company when it's not yours if you're not one being paid and you're not invested is is quite unlikely Mm. so I always looked at who was on my kind of investment shareholder plan already and then picked from there okay um and then I based it off of who I had a really good relationship with and what value they were bringing to the business and what's in it for I mean I guess presumably a stake that's equity that's what's in it for them or well no because they're they've already invested so the guy on my board actually doesn't make anything extra oh i see but they the, want it to see well they've now wants the, the business game. to succeed because it's going to show a higher return on his money obviously and there's also an understanding that i'm not going to know everything mm. um and he comes from a finance background so i literally couldn't have picked anyone better <laughs> <laughs> for what i need um it's a lot of long phone calls of like this is you just need to make this excel spreadsheet look like this and use this formula i'm like yeah yeah, i know how to do that like how have you 
learned the operational and financial side of running a business? I mean, I learned aspects of it in the beginning and I would say it probably wasn't done that well. It was done to a standard in which an investor could look at it and be like, okay, you've thought about what you're spending and you've thought about what you're projecting. Mm -hmm. But otherwise it, it was a mess. Now I look at the documentation we have now that we have accountants and COOs and you know finance a board director who comes from finance and it's completely different it's like beyond what I would have ever expected to have made um and several people make that with me it's not me just like sitting in a room alone okay (laughs) like making up formulas um yeah our documentation has definitely grown up with the business and I want to talk about crowdfunding because that is how, so the, for the first sort of initial injection of capital that Fleem had, you had investors. Yeah. And for the most recent round, mm-hmm. you decided to crowdfund. Yeah. Why did you decide that, that was the right decision for your company at that stage? It took me quite a while, actually, because at that stage... I'd already had about five months of conversations with investors, so there was already money committed to the round. Um, and it was our first Valentine's Day, Valentine's Mother's Day. And when we, w- when we looked at the different crowdfunding platforms, we'd seen other brands, product-based ba- brands, that had done really well in terms of sales. So we thought, well, it's about to be peak season, which means there's high intent in buying. And we get included on all the CrowdCube or there's other crowdfunding platforms, but they include you on their mailers. Um, So basically, you're kind of buying access to a huge mailer base at a time where there's high intent to buy because most people have mothers, right? Mm. (laughs) So whether you're investing or not, what you're seeing is a flower company days before it's Mother's Day. So that was kind of our strategy behind doing something like that um so a bit of a promotional it was it was hugely promotional um but it took a lot of time and there was a lot of due diligence and in the long run I don't know if it was worth it Um, why do you say that it's it's just a it's a serious serious time consuming process you're basically I was basically out of the business for a month wow having conversations with potential investors and it's it's nice in some sense because you see so many like I saw so many of my friends from Burberry or my past like put 50 quid in or put 100 quid in so it feels like a community that's like really backed by people who you never thought even knew you had a business let alone backed it and that's quite in keeping with how I see Flume as a business because you champion independence and I would definitely say we're like the people's choice of our competitors yes I love I love is that a new tagline um but so what did you learn from that crowd crowdfunding process then? Um, I think I learned to be more confident talking about money, actually, because when you're on a crunch time and literally there's a timer on it, it's like this is how much time you have to raise to get this much money. Um, how much did you raise through that round? We, our target was 350 and we did th- uh, 350,000. 350, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, and our we did 590. Whoa, so you overfunded by a lot. Yeah. How did that happen? Um, We hit our target is basically how it happened. I mean, if we had done 100,000 as our target, we would have probably overfunded more. Okay. The biggest learning it was, was that set a really low target. And once you hit that target, people just invest without even asking you for a business plan. Oh, I see, because it's a kind of measure of success. A men- yeah, it's a men- the mentality that, well, That's interesting. if it's backed by all of these other people, mm. hopefully within reason, I mean, don't go up, go on there <laughs> with like a rubbish idea and no financials. Um, I mean, you wouldn't get through, but yeah, I definitely set a low target. And also don't be afraid to ask what people's ticket sizes are or investment sizes are. I was about to say, because through a crowdfunder, anyone can invest any amount it could yeah. be 50 pounds like you said it could be 10,000 50,000 mm-hmm. obviously all the investors that you already had pre-committed had to go through yeah was it crowdcube you used yeah. um but then you have the balance between 
the smaller investments as well like how do they kind of fit into the picture how important are they they're definitely important because they're you know they're your fans they're the ones who are going to buy from you talk about you share what you're doing whereas in the bigger investors believe it or not are like great i've made my investment now make it back for me um a lot of the people who probably invest and it can be 10 pounds in some cases probably don't expect to see that much money back Mm. it's just you know being able to put something into a business supporting a business that they think is a great idea um but otherwise there's different share structures so there's a and b shares in our cases and if you're over or under a certain amount you get a different share structure and that defines what rights you do or don't have okay got it and i want to talk a little bit or quite a lot about promoting flume because i think you are excellent at it um it you know, there was a lot of buzz around when you started and, you know, a lot of press features. And actually that's continued a lot since. Like, I think that's been a consistent feature. So how at launch, like, how did you go about spreading the word, getting press, all of that stuff? What, what was your approach? We had a, we had an agency at launch. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. We had an agency for three months and I didn't think they were very good. Mm. Um, so I won't name any names, but... Definitely, I think having somebody who can help you with a launch strategy in the beginning when you have so much else going on mm-hmm. is really important. And I think PR agencies generally are completely overpriced. Yeah. Um, Especially, I think, for someone like you who I just think you have a very good understanding of that world and about media and consumer behavior and culture, all of that stuff, which I think is the arena that Flume has very much played in. I can imagine for some people who are maybe coming at it from a, like a tech background and hadn't worked at ID mm-hmm. might require a sort of more of a helping hand on PR side. Yeah, probably. I mean, we're, I'm quite lucky because I can talk to my business and it's about flowers and the imagery mm. is beautiful. And, mm. you know, there's there's so many different pockets of conversation that I fit into. So we do get a lot of organic, great PR. But even with my background, weirdly, when you're in it, you don't see it the same way. Like and you don't have the time. You completely, I don't know, like we have consultants come to us now and tell us like what they feel like they could do for us. And I'm like, well, yeah, I could have come up with that. Mm. But I don't, you know, and it's like all the same brands. I know exactly like who I need to speak to and what I need to do. And it just doesn't happen. Yeah, And I can, I can see, see that. that with my friends' businesses as well. Like I can walk in there and be like, here's a strategy. But when it's yours, you're so like bogged down in just the busyness of being busy Mm. that it's really hard to step away. Um, But yeah, we've had a mixture of agencies, which other than for a launch, I would never, I would probably never use. Okay. Um, And then a couple of people here and there helping us, whether it's a single PR person or a lot of organic or just generating our own around different things. How do you... But that my question is that, like, how do you generate your own? Like, are you literally pitching to journalists, sending them a press release? Like, yeah. for someone, okay. Yeah, so we we have kind of a big list now that's ongoing. Um, we can look at, we look at different publications, see what stories we could fit into or what sections, see who wrote it. Um, you know that I'm famous for email hunting people. Yes. <laughs> Actually, I think it's you that gifted me with, is it Hunter? yeah email hunter email hunter i've it's, it was you who told me about <laughs> yeah. that and i use it i would say pretty much every day i use it literally for anything whether it's investment or pr or anything you can just find anyone's name if you have the time and the willingness to go out and say okay these are the people i need to speak to to write this story and just build a list of emails and what mm. their roles are and then you can find their emails on linkedin that was my approach when my book came out over the summer was using hunter and a little bit of sort of my brain. I would look at like a publication and try and figure out who the commissioning editor exactly. might be. Yeah. And then use Hunter, a bit of trial and error, and then an email would land in their inbox. <laughs> a lot of <laughs> a lot of this mail has this order. Bounce backs. <laughs> bounce yeah. backs, yeah. I've had so many bounce backs. Me too. Um, um, but, but it's effective. It's really effective. And there's actually ways that you can bulk email people without it looking like you're bulk emailing them as well. That's interesting. I always say that every email should be so tailored that, I mean, it depends on whether you have the time. And I imagine you definitely don't have the time. Um, but I always 
when I'm reaching out in a kind of press point of view or just general reach outs, I'm like, it should be so tailored that if it were to go to someone else, it would seem weird. Like if you just change the name, yeah. it would seem weird because you would mention their publication and, you know, they beat the beat they write about and similar things. Oh, yeah. It, it's still that tailored. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah. You need to tell me about this. <laughs> you just you just have different... Basically, you upload a CSV and you have different columns and then you put bits of code into what you want changed. Ah, uh, okay. So you can literally put, like, a, a whole section specific. What is a CSV? Um, it's, like, an Excel, Excel. download. Okay. Um, and then the it's called Reply Up. I think it's, like, 11 quid a month. Reply App. Up. Reply Up. Um, and you can upload, say... 300 emails that's amazing all the different which is, which is obviously not what we do all of our emails are super personal no i mean <laughs> but i think everyone understands what the nature of yeah, the game is we're we're a tech fast growing business like yeah. we need to email 300 people a day i was about to say it makes sense that, that you found this really high tech way <laughs> of doing it as well only you lana um okay and actually i want to talk a little bit because I think something that kind of falls maybe slightly under the promotion side and something that you've done loads of are partnerships and collaborations with other brands. So what is how does that help Flume as a business? What's the incentive for you to do that besides just the kind of warm and fuzzies of working with a brand that you like? I mean, it has negatives and positives, definitely. You need to, you need to do a lot of work and really understand what brands share the same audience as you. Otherwise, it can be a huge waste of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but for us, it's it's technically free advertising. And we're okay. dealing with really s- small advertising budgets. So, And they say what a customer has to see your brand seven times before they trust it. Oh, okay. Never heard that um, So it's just that element of like, well, if, you know, our user buys furniture from Smoon Editions and eats at, I don't know, Whole Foods, you know, what What are the ways that we can get to them in front of all of these different touch points? Mm-hmm. Um, so partnerships kind of does that for us. It's that hope that if they buy furniture or food or clothes from these brands, our assumption is that they do buy them from those brands, and then they see our name men- mentioned in their mailer or on their social, it just builds trust. Okay. So it would be like, oh, yeah, they've seen us maybe advertise on Facebook, but they saw us three more times via brands that they actually use. Um, So that's why we do partnerships quite a lot. Okay. And are those partnerships, from a financial point of view, is there incentive there, or is it more of a brand-building exercise? There's always hopes that it's going to turn into orders. (laughs) Generally, it doesn't. Um, I'd say one of the biggest things that we've done that hasn't turned into orders is flyer trades what is that when you trade flyers so like we'll send you a thousand flyers to put in your boxes um okay so we did that with like mindful chef got it or um anything that kind of sends out like monthly subscription stuff oh i see i see they'll give us a bunch of flyers with a code and then we'll put it in all of our bouquets got it um those things tend to not work I was about to say because I get so much of that stuff and I think my instant reaction is to put them straight in recycling yeah there's like 10 within one envelope and you're like yeah I never read them Um, that's that's interesting and that's when you try to spend more money to make them different so you stand out and but also a flyer maybe yeah people still do them potentially Mm. for a reason and we're doing like 3,000 at a time and they're doing like 400,000 at a time. I was about to say, it depends on scale and what proportion of your budget that is. Don't listen to me. Don't go, (laughs) flyers don't work. If you're willing to do like a million of them around the country, probably get some sort of return and still cost nothing. So maybe there's a bit of a tipping point. Yeah, perhaps. Okay, that's interesting. I always look at those things. I'm like, if everyone's doing it, it has to work, right? Mm, I don't know. I feel like, well, like you say, like for a big business, that's just like one you know, element of a very big marketing and yeah. advertising spend. And sometimes they're not even tracked that well. Like I know from my advertising years that often there were things that we were doing that just didn't have any returns but because the company is so big and has so much money to spend. No one even really cares. Yeah. But when you're a startup and you're lean, you have to care. Definitely. Um, so that's interesting. I want to move on slightly and talk about hiring and managing a team. So you've written about the challenges of hiring and managing a team as a startup as well, which I think is a very different ball game from like a long established company. 
Um, but actually, before we get into that, I want to ask a very basic question. What is your role as the founder of the company? What is your remit? Like, what are your responsibilities? I'm still trying to figure it out, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of everything until you hire somebody mm. to do that specific role. And then even then, it's figuring out how you fit into what their abilities are. Mm-hmm. It's, I would say this this question pretty much encapsulates this year for me where it's like I did everything and I could make decisions without looking at data or just gut feeling or anything and over the past few months it's become like respecting people within their roles understanding where I fit now that we have certain people Mm. so it's yeah it's constantly changing I mean at the moment I would say it's fundraising because we just did another fundraise Okay. Um, and that pretty much takes me out of the office. Okay. But then it's like, it's thinking of the future and strategy and I'm still quite involved in partnerships because I'm very specific about what our brand is. I imagine it's very, very difficult when this thing is your baby, it's come to life because of you and all your hard work. It must be very hard to relinquish control over certain areas. Yeah, I still do things that I get called into a room like a week (laughs) later by our COO and he was like, do you realize what you did there? Yeah. (laughs) Like it's it's overbearing and it takes a a while to see that you're doing it, Mm. Um, especially when you're reactive and I'm a very reactive person. Like if something's not working, I'm not waiting two hours, like I'm fixing it now, but I'm fixing it based on how I think Mm. is the best way to fix it, which might go against the time and work other people have put in. Yeah, I was about to say, imagine a lot of that is about also keeping the team motivated and respecting the boundaries of what you've hired people to do. And it's probably not that effective a use of your time at at a certain point. No, and it's. I think also it's definitely not a way to learn or to teach. Mm. Because if I'm fixing something so fast, you've got to also allow people to screw up. That must be incredibly hard to do. That well, doesn't. That to me sounds like. Do you? Why? Like, no. Um, it. But then at the same time, me saying that doesn't mean that they're screwing up. Mm. You know, it might be me screwing up. But when you're reactive, you don't really get the opportunity to learn those things. Okay. Um. Yeah. That I think figuring out what I do is a is a very complicated thing at the moment. So how big is the Flume team now? So there's eight of us. Okay. Yeah. You're managing eight people. And you have a COO who oh, is... There's seven. There's eight, including me. Okay. And one of them is a COO. Yeah. What does a COO do? Um, he's chief of operations. So what does that encompass? So we're lucky because we're a marketplace. So we have supply demand, kind of a obvious split between how the business works. Mm. Um, and Jack deals with a lot of supply stuff. Okay. Um, a lot of the in-office stuff. Um, our processes for tracking business intelligence data, our processes for signing up florists, our processes for internal requests on design, all of those kind of things. It's interesting that you've mentioned that and it's actually only now that you've mentioned it that it has reminded me. But yeah, Freedom is a business of two halves. There is the consumer facing side which I see when I log on and order some very nice apology flowers which (laughs) I think is the first time that I used Flume right um and there is also the supply side which uh, all the independent florists that you work with yeah how do you go about like getting florists on if you can share or like what do you look for in a florist and a flower partner yeah I think people don't actually realize it's like running two businesses. Yeah. Um, because on that side, we have, we have what, 73 florists now around the country. Mm-hmm. All of them who we've trained how to use a technical back end that they've never used before. Um, and you're constantly, and they have the ability to pick when they deliver, what their delivery dates are, what their, t- what their postcodes that they're willing to deliver to are. So there's a lot of like, 
maintenance that goes into it because they go on holiday some days they can't do Thursdays they're doing weddings you know there's a lot of changing things around constantly and we're bidding ads on like same day delivery and then someone takes down their same day so (laughs) there's a lot of back and forth so we have community management so on that side of things there's actually almost more going on Mm. than on the demand side of things yeah I can I can imagine it's the side that people don't see but it's the product that people are buying and just for people listening it might seem really obvious but the flu models that you get a commission on each of the orders exactly essentially i want to just ask you a couple of general questions just to kind of wrap up um what is the most challenging aspect of what you do as sort of day to day and as a founder um probably growing up i think as a business Mm -hmm. so scaling it's in every aspect, it's how how to act, you know, with new team members, it's how to scale the business, it's how to hit targets, it's how to make better documentation. At every single stage, you know, you need to grow up with it mm. and just becoming comfortable with that in itself. I think it's been the biggest thing. You, at the moment, I'm hearing so many stories about people or CEOs especially founders getting removed from their businesses oh my god and we're definitely like five years away from that (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) you need you probably need VC money first but it is that reality that as a founder you can walk into a room and you can like tell anybody whether they work directly under you or not what to do Mm. um and when to do it and it goes against process and it's not always the best thing for the business so I think yeah growing up and trying to look at how I run things and listen to the team when they tell me that I need to stop being a certain way I went through such a big hiring process and like learning how to hire this year that now I'm going through a culture process okay like all I'm reading or talking or thinking about is culture it's like god I've got I've got people last thing I want to do is have to rehire for those roles (laughs) so what is your approach to hiring people because also like how do you find someone that's the right fit because also for a startup that is I think slightly different to you know a big company if you're hiring one person and there are only six employees that's a huge change as opposed to hiring one additional person when you're a company of a hundred or a thousand so how do you approach that yeah um my first approach was if you got a feeling and it was good hire them hire them give them three months and then if it doesn't work out (laughs) get rid of them that sounds expensive or <laughs> um, time consuming it is re- it's wrong because onboarding really, people really is a long process yeah it was a really it was i kind of thought well we really need someone in right now to do the job you nothing bad can happen of having someone in mm. to at least get started and doing it mm. um and uh, thinking about it now maybe nothing bad happened I learned how not to hire Mm. probably um and now the process is completely different like there's a lot more it's less of a conversation I was actually reading a thing recently that was saying that founders shouldn't hire for their companies why because you're salespeople you're used to selling uh, your business. And it's true, I'll walk into an interview and I'll, I'll make that person want that job. Mm. It doesn't become about whether it's right for them or they're good at it. It's, mm. I want you to want it because we're so amazing and we're do- going to be doing so many amazing things. That's a really good spot, actually. Yeah, because... and you actually completely forget to ask the right questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Jack hires, he like asks proper questions and sets projects for them afterwards and... So yeah, Jack's definitely taught me a lot in watching him hire. Um, and now it, it's a several step process where okay. both of us are involved. It's, you know, me more for feel, for culture, for understanding, like, does everyone else on the team want to work with this person, hang out with this person every day? Because ultimately you spend a lot of time with those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then together with Jack, we'll build, we'll build kind of projects that they need to respond to. What? part of running a business do you think people would find most surprising and I've asked this because we are definitely living in an era where it's very very sexy to be an entrepreneur particularly a female entrepreneur and a young one and a photogenic one and all of that stuff which you are all of those things so I want to know what are the surprising things that people probably don't realize 
It's funny you say that because I feel like being an entrepreneur actually escalates getting rid of those things. What, what youth, <laughs> photogenic. Being sexy, photogenic, <laughs> any of those things, you're just tired. And, um, I don't know, the most surprising things that you kind of just, you figure things out, I mm-hmm. think. And maybe that's to my personality. But you get put into a lot of situations where people are always like, how did you manage that? And I'm like, I don't know. I didn't even think about it. It just happened. Mm. Um, And another one is probably that whilst you do have like some really low moments and it can be really lonely, generally you think you're going to succeed. Final question. Are there any big mistakes or major learnings that you've had since starting out that you think might be useful to other people who want to do something similar to you in terms of starting a business like what if what's the biggest thing that you've learned probably that there are no big mistakes very philosophical can you expand (laughs) um i always have these these times where people think people say things to me like oh you you raised for too low of a valuation in the beginning or I don't know, you get you get so many things that happen over time that people put you in a situation or you put yourself in a situation to think, oh, I did that incorrectly. Mm. And then when you look back at it, you're actually like, no, I didn't. It's mm. what I could have done at the time. Yeah. Um, with the information with that I you had. had. Yeah, totally. I've- and it got me to a stage where... And you'll generally find in most cases you're still doing better. You're still doing worse than a lot of other companies who maybe raised at like 10 times the valuation you had without a product. Mm. But you're still doing better than a lot of others as well. Mm. Um, And it's all learning. Like any kind of big, big mistake we've done has come out in such big learning that, you know, it hasn't been big enough to be detrimental to the failure of the business. Mm. So it's hard to say that there's been any big massive massive mistakes I think that's a really good point to make because it's something that I beat myself up about a lot just when I might look back on something I did six months ago or a year ago and be like why did I do that why did I agree to that and I was making the best possible decision at the time with the information I had and the experience I had and sure in five years time or in ten years time I might look back at some of the decisions I'm making now and be like I'd have done that differently but that is the benefit of hindsight so yeah of course and also I've learned things from them like you were saying yeah one of the funniest thing things I've noticed about myself is I'm actually a lot worse at making decisions now than I used to be why and I've I can't figure out exactly why I've been thinking about this a lot like it took me about three months to figure out to make a decision on our office move oh wow you know whereas in before you just make these decisions is it because there's more at stake now I mean, it's an office move. <laughs> no, you know? but like, I mean, just you pick the place, just say yes. True. <laughs> but also, I mean, obviously where you work is important, but that is There's more a potentially people. more disruptive decision if it doesn't work out than there was, than it would have been a year ago when it was just you and like one other person. Yeah. And you're talking about like several year contracts yeah. and like way bigger things. But still, I think that it's it's the process it's having gone through the process of people making me second guess the Mm. fast decisions I've made and really off the back of it I've stopped thinking like why am I like this just like stop doing it Mm. I was actually much happier and I felt like the business was moving a lot faster when I would just make decisions even if they're not always right like generally you can find ways out of them that is famous last very words. yeah <laughs> some very good advice we'll check in in six months yeah. um <laughs> Great. before i let you go i want to do a quick rapid fire round where i just ask you a couple of questions very quickly just say the first thing that comes into your head okay. don't think about it too much so first question if you weren't doing what you're doing now what would have been your plan b um oh this is so unfair i couldn't imagine not doing anything else that's legit Okay. I think you're a born entrepreneur. Definitely. You're such a hustler. I can't even imagine going back to a normal job. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Because, I mean, for people listening, so you came up through... Or can you just kind of give a quick pricey of your career background? Um, I was a PA at Burberry. And then I went digital project management, um, agency side, 
worked on brands like Gucci, Nike, Marc Jacobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at Vice, I was head of branded content at ID. And do you ever see yourself going back to work for anyone else? Um, I would probably try and start a business again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you never know. I always, you know, I still look at other startups and I'm like, oh, I could go into that business and be quite senior and probably offer quite a lot. Yeah. One of the amazing things about having a startup is everybody wants your knowledge now. It's Mm. such a like hot topic. But you do actually realize that you learn so much that these big businesses just have no idea. Mm. Um, Okay, next question. Not so rapid fire, that one. No, but it's fine. (laughs) I'm happy to expand as as and when. Um, What was the last book you read? Um, I'm reading Freedom. Which book? By Franzen. Franzen, Oh, yeah. I haven't Um, read that. I've been reading it for about a year. (laughs) (laughs) I still bring it into the bathroom with me every single time I take a bath. And I just sit on my phone doing emails. (laughs) I definitely have a book like that on my bedside table that is too big for me to carry out of the house like it's just really heavy it's so embarrassing but But I also have um a bunch of company culture books Mm. that yeah you mentioned um are now just sitting in my house also not being read okay well again we'll check back in (laughs) six months um what's your worst working habit working evenings you do do that. I was going to yeah. ask, one of the questions that I had, actually, but I decided to skip over it, was are you an early bird or a night owl? Because I just feel like maybe you're both. Like, you work late. I, I, I prefer working at night. Okay. I don't know why. I like, on the weekend, I won't go in until, like, two or three. Mm. And then I'll stay till, like, midnight one. I think my brain wakes up in the afternoon. And sometimes when you're in the zone, it's just about... Often I think it's about not being disturbed by other people. Like between nine and five is when emails are coming in and yeah. people want stuff from you and it's just distracting. Whereas once things kind of taper off when people have kind of gone home for the day, you're like, ah, now I can get into my stride. Um, no, I think also idea. the habit of like nine o'clock, nine to five being meetings, meetings and emails, mm. that even on the weekend when I'm not having meetings... I just feel like I can't fully relax and like get in the zone until everyone's gone home, even though no one's there. Um, that's a good point. How would you? How do you think the people you work with would describe you in three words? I don't think I want to know. Okay. How would you describe yourself in three words? Um, driven, very good at procrastinating. Um, that's more than three words. <laughs> Shit. I'll let you have that. Thank you very much for joining me, Lana. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Where can people find you and your work and Flume? Um, Flume.com, probably, or Mm -hmm. follow us on Instagram. It's Flume Official. Mm -hmm. Um, If you like flowers, otherwise probably don't. I mean, even if you don't like flowers, other people in your life might do. So That's that's true. Send them (laughs) flowers. Flowers are for other people. Maybe (laughs) I'm going to start self-gifting myself Flume. You definitely should. I do it all the time. Do you? I mean, I try. I mean, you probably do it to to test it out, but maybe I'll just do it. (laughs) I tried to do it this weekend because the team posted something on Instagram and I was like, oh, I really want that. And it actually wasn't up yet. I was like, why are we posting stuff that's not up? Oh, my God. Okay, so that makes sense for you to do that. Okay. Brilliant. Thanks, Lana. Great. Thanks for having me. Okay, now it's time for Ask a Tega our regular segment where I play career agony aunt to your pressing questions and career dilemmas and whatever other issues you're dealing with in the workplace. This month's letter is from someone who is working in an office and has a job that has the same level of responsibility as some of her male colleagues, but she doesn't have the same senior title. Here it is. Dear Otega, I work in a startup company and I head up the design team. My title is design lead, which was in my contract. I was under the impression that other senior members were also called leads, but it became apparent when I started working here that the other seniors, who are all men, are called head of. A junior designer who reports into me recently started, and during her induction, she was presented with a structure of the marketing team. She mentioned that it seems obvious that there's male dominance in the office, as I was the odd one out within the team structure. 
For reference, the website coordinator reports into the head of e-commerce and the performance marketing specialist reports into the head of acquisition. I brought this up with my CMO, chief marketing officer, who kind of brushed it off and told me to speak to my new boss, who's head of brand. This is a guy who made a comment when I met him that there were to be no heads under me. After what my designer told me, I'm really bothered and quite upset by this. I really want to talk to my new boss about this, but I'm sure I'll get shut down with, I'm the head. Shall I mention that I feel there's a gender gap here and that even my new designer has noticed? Yours sincerely, not being recognized. I was really annoyed when I got this email, um, annoyed on behalf of the letter writer um, for so, so many reasons, because let's face it, job titles are important. They are a signal both to the outside world and to your colleagues of what level you are within your organisation and the remit of your role. And I say this because I think sometimes, particularly in creative industries, people can be like, oh, job titles aren't important. It doesn't matter. It's, you know, why are you being so hierarchical? They matter. They're important outside your company. For example, if you're on the job hunt and a prospective employer looks at your CV, they'll look at your job title as an indicator of your capabilities and experience, not to mention your likely salary. They will use your job title to kind of figure out where you're likely to be on and sort of try and triangulate where you should be on based on that and their expectations. Um, So you wanna make sure they're in line. Same to, you know, if someone is scouting LinkedIn, looking for people who do a certain job because they wanna approach them and recruit them, your job title will help them, will be an indicator to them of what kind of work you currently do, what level you're at. Um, I also think they're pretty important internally from a day-to-day perspective. Um, I know that when I used to work in big companies, so I used to work in advertising, and when I was working in a big ad agency, if I needed to approach someone in a different department and I wasn't really sure who to approach, maybe I had a question or an issue or wanted to like talk about a project, my first step would generally be to look at the org chart of the company and go from there. So they're important because they can actually help you and the people around you do your job better and be more effective and save everyone time and just be a general indicator. So in conclusion, job titles are very important. And actually, before I kind of get into this specific issue, as a general note and aside, I want to say that if you've outgrown your job title, say you've been working at a company for several years and your responsibilities have grown, you're doing a lot more than you were when you started out and your job title no longer really reflects the work you're doing, you should be really vigilant about that. Um, and think about addressing that or definitely address that with your line manager or department head or whoever the relevant person is. Um, And it's not even necessarily just about getting a more senior title and the stuff that comes with it, which might well be a pay rise as well. Um, So that's obviously important. But if, for instance, you've made more of a lateral move in the company and you're now doing something just quite different, um, it's also important to reflect that in your job title. To address your particular issue, more specifically, not being recognised, where would I start with this? I I would say, first of all, just to cover yourself, make total, you know, be totally sure that you actually are on a par in terms of responsibilities and seniority with your male colleagues who have the head of title before you approach someone about this. So just really look, maybe they have more experience or maybe you actually are in subtle or not so subtle ways doing quite different jobs. Maybe they do actually have more people reporting into them than you do. You said you've got one kind of direct report. Maybe they've got five or 10 or more. I don't know the structure of your company, but I would say just kind of do your due diligence on that and make sure that there is actually a discrepancy in the team structure and that you know these people are doing similar jobs to you in terms of managerial responsibilities before broaching the topic if you feel like there are then I would definitely 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 broach the topic um a word of warning nobody likes being called sexist um so whilst there quite possibly is a gender-based reason for this situation and in fact there, pr- there probably is um I will kind of take your intuition on that I would really really avoid bringing that up straight off the bat 
if at all. Um, unfortunately, men and just generally companies tend to become extremely defensive when they're accused of sexism, even though they very often are, as we've seen in a lot of stuff that's been revealed in the press and media of late. Um, so even if that's what you suspect is going on, I would say that you should probably be a bit more diplomatic about approaching it. And what you need to focus on doing is making an inarguable case for a title change based on the realities of your job function and the job function of those around you, as opposed to anything that is a little bit more subjective. It's annoying, but it's also a pragmatic way of approaching this. And if you want to get things changed in your favour, you're going to need to be pragmatic here. Another thing I would say is there is really no need to mention that this discrepancy was pointed out to you by someone else because that could be interpreted quite badly as though you're kind of like gossiping with a new employee and turning them against the company. Um, and also the fact that actually a new employee, even though it's kind of great, that, you know, there's this outside perspective, they're not actually necessarily in that great a position to evaluate a company's structure because they're new and they don't necessarily know how things work. So that doesn't really work in your favour anyway. So generally, I would avoid kind of saying that this perception has come from anywhere outside of you. I just don't think it'll work in your favour. Um, in your case, there is another difficulty in figuring out who to actually approach about this problem. You've already said that your boss, who is head of brand, probably won't be that helpful because he said that comment about having no heads of under him. Don't know in what context that was said, um, but that isn't necessarily his call. Um, I don't know the team structure, but it sounds, you mentioned a CMO, the chief marketing officer, who technically is the head of the marketing department, you know, you should be looking to see if there are other more senior people in the company who have the kind of necessary power to change the org structure, change your job title. In your case, it does sound like your CMO is that person. So I would definitely return to the topic with him and be a little bit more um, concerted in saying that you would like to have a meeting and a proper sit down to catch up and discuss that specific issue. Um, and don't let him push it onto this head of brand guy. And if necessary, say that you don't really think that that is the head of brand's remit or role or responsibility or call um, to make that decision and that you would like to speak to him about it. And then in that meeting, um, it's really just about outlining that you do have the same responsibilities as the other heads of that you've mentioned. So whether that's managing people, managing clients, assigning work, having direct reports, doing you know performance evaluations, all of that other stuff, you need to outline the ways in which your job title, your job roles are essentially the same and therefore your job titles should be the same. And then say that as a result, you'd like to change your job title to reflect that. You don't need to give any further justification besides that, like don't turn it into an emotional thing. It is just very much a straight up and down practical thing. I do the same job as these people. I have the same level of seniority and responsibility as these people. Therefore, I should have the same job. If your CMO says no, ask him why. Um, the fact that this other person, your boss, has said that there'll be no heads of under him isn't a good enough reason. Like his ego shouldn't be affecting your job title if you're doing the required work to have a head of um, title. Um, so yeah, the key thing really is about making just an inarguable case for the fact that you're doing the same job as everyone else. If you don't get anywhere with the CMO or the head of department, I would then consider talking to HR about it ask them to walk you through the org chart of the company as it pertains to you and point out your concerns. Um, a word of warning, I think it's always important to remember that HR exists to protect your company. They are on your company's side, not yours. Um, however, they are likely to be a bit more objective and understand the potentially, you know, harmful effects for the company that this can have if it looks like they are discriminating against someone because of their gender. Um, and also, you know, they, they are helpful departments to work with in general and they can have a discussion on your behalf with the seniors in question if you make a really clear case about why your title is out of line with your peers. So that 
overall is my general advice is just really making an inarguable case and putting that to the right person don't bring out the gender thing um unless you know you feel like you really have to unless you're really not getting anywhere and if you're starting to feel like look guys this is the reason that i think that the discrepancy is kind of not even being acknowledged as something that's out of whack um but i wouldn't lead with the fact that you feel like you're being discriminated against as women which is unfortunate um but people tend to be really defensive about that kind of thing so yeah hope that helps both you and anyone who is in a similar position i imagine that that is a lot more common than it should be in a lot of companies um yeah and do let me know how you get on if you've got a career question that you're struggling with and that you'd like my opinion on don't hesitate email podcast at womenwho.co and i will do my very very best to answer your question in the next episode and that's it for this month thank you for listening i hope you found that useful for more where that came from follow me at otega uagba on instagram and twitter that's o-t-e-g-h-a u-w-a-g-b-a and you can also follow women who which is at women who again on instagram and twitter or head to www.womenwho.co to sign up for our weekly newsletter, find out about upcoming events we've got coming, and generally stay in the loop with everything Women Who related. If you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to subscribe to get the next episode straight to your phone. And please, please, please do leave me a nice review whilst you're there. And of course, spread the word, tell the working women in your life to listen as well. See you next time.